for me, that's really why you hang out with me in a book is not because I can give you interesting characters and interesting plot, but really kind of the why. And that's not even research. It's more like it's not research in a conventional sense of data and facts and unusual items. It's really about, well, why does Nick care about this? Why does men care about this? And that's what keeps me up at night. And that's what makes me revise work is to try to figure out that more than anything else. Welcome to Drinks with Nick. I'm your host, Nick Petrolakis. I have a few very special episodes coming your way because everything Min Jin Lee does is special. You just heard her describing why you should hang out with her in her books. I'll just add that you should read Min Jin Lee because, quite simply, she is one of the best novelists writing today. She was also incredibly generous with her time. So generous that, like I said, I have not one but two episodes with her to share. In this first one, we talk about, well, <laughs> we talk about a lot. Her novel Pachinko, of course, but also Thich Nhat Hanh and Thelonious Monk. We talk about the craft of writing, of the many Greeks living in Queens. You'll find out why you should smile while washing dishes. Oh, and I brag about the Greeks creating the idea of hospitality. Because, well, the Greeks, we created everything, right? I was a little out of breath when I caught up with Min on a busy Saturday last year, but naturally, she put me immediately at my ease. So let's discuss the New York Times best-selling top 10 book of the year, Pachinko. But more importantly, let's just talk with the incredible Min Jin Lee. Hi, Nick. Oh my gosh, Min, seriously, first I have to say that I keep kicking myself that I never reached out while you were here. That was just dumb of me not to have you done can't- that. It's all good. It's all good. I'm going to bend the universe to see you. (laughs) (laughs) That is very kind of you to say. Wait, get to like take a breath before getting your kid home and doing super dad things. (laughs) I've really come into my own as a driver. When we moved, Christina, our youngest, is a gymnast. So we took her to a bunch of gyms so that she could try them out. And the one that was closest to us, she said, yeah, you know, that's that's a really fun gym. They they seem to have a really good time there. I don't know, though, if it would be challenging for me. And she said, oh. she said, now that gym, the girls were having a good time, and I think it would be challenging. And so I think I want to go there. This, of course, was the gym that's 45 minutes away mm. that she goes to five days a week. But we had just <gasps> moved her. We had just moved 3,000 miles. And so... And she is just like her mother. She is just a little litigator. So, oh my gosh, what are you going to say? <laughs> Except, oh, of course. Well, it's an hour away each way, right? Yes. Oh, goodness gracious. So anyway. Oh my, you're a good dad. And you know what? I, this is what I think. He may be a little litigator and that's just swell because I admit defeat to my kid all the time. <laughs> But you know, one day I'm going to get mine. I mean, <laughs> oh no, oh for sure. It may be. You owe me, pal. You owe me. It, it may be a while, but there's going to be a day reckoning. <laughs> so, again, so, man, I want to say thank you so much. Pleasure. No, no, there's nothing to thank. I, this is this is my pleasure, and this is a fun way for us to catch up. How are you? You know, I'm well. I mean, it's year three now here on the East Coast. But we're doing well. And so you are now, you are in 
New York. Is that correct? Yeah. I do teach at Amherst College, but it's been a commuting thing. But this year, of course, it's all virtual. Right. So it's been easier to teach because I'm not commuting almost 10 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> That's a gift. That's a gift for sure. Um, yeah, and, and so how are you? I mean, otherwise, I mean, how are you dealing with all of all of this? I I think it's the... I think that the, the strife with civil liberties multiplied by the pandemic, multiplied by the fact that we had this incredibly troubling and divisive election, have been the craziest intersection. So I don't know anybody who could focus or keep a sentence coherent. So you have to forgive me if I make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> But I think everybody feels that way. But I guess what I'm, I'm kind of keeping it together because I'm working a lot. I've never worked so much in my life and I feel really lucky to have work. So I take that pretty seriously, making my little lists and doing them. And then whenever I look up from my desk, I'm going, oh, yeah, it's still shitty. Okay, <laughs> I'll go back to work. <laughs> it, it is. You, you, right, you, you look out the, the window of the garret and it's like, Oh no, it, it's it's still pretty gray out there, huh? How that? <laughs> I know, and we keep thinking that it's going to come to an end, and and yet, and yet, I must say, I am really inspired by the good news of the vaccines of being so effective. So I'm kind of thinking, oh, maybe by May we'll have enough for everybody, and perhaps we could have a summer. Like, wouldn't that be swell uh, to have a summer? I mean, wouldn't that be swell? Yeah. Was that, what, October 2016 when you were up for NCIBA? And I got to introduce you along with that wonderful roster of authors. You know, how long ago that feels? That feels like a million years ago. Doesn't it? I was thinking about that today because the dinner that I was lucky enough to attend, oh my gosh, do you remember that with the wonderful Karen Torres? Thank you, Karen and Tom McIntyre. And I think we were at what original Joe's. I remember every single moment because it was so foundational for me in the way I understood. It's funny because when you write books, you're so alone all the time and right. you go out and you meet these folks who are kind of championing you and what you've been doing, but then you meet them and they're so, they're, they're readers like you are like, I mean, writers are readers, right? We're just a bunch of dorky people. And <laughs> we are indeed. And I love that. I love that because it's not, it doesn't feel like business, although obviously it is, but a lot of it's just because we kind of want to hang out with other readers. <laughs> so, we do. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, and for us, and just so you know, from our perspective, those events, being lucky enough to be chosen to attend a pre-publication cocktail party or like yours was a dinner that for me is really has always been one of the hugest perks because like you say we get to hang out with like-minded dorks but then we get to and you learn the writers the biggest dorks so <laughs> <laughs> well but i mean in thinking about that i can remember so again so karen torres hosted that party Tom McIntyre was instrumental in getting us all there. It was at Original Joe's, right, in Washington Square Park in San Francisco. And I can remember Tom sending me a note saying, because I think I had shared with him the drink that I had made 
for you, Pachinko. And he said, you know, I'm so glad that you did that. What a fun night we had. And then Tom just went on about how much he loved free food for millionaires, but he really thought that Pachinko was going to resonate even more. And I, I looked back at that note from him today and the wishes that Tom had for you then, which is now exactly four years ago, it's hard to square that with what has happened with you and Pachinko. We, of course, all hoped for the best for Pachinko, but I, I don't think any of us could have imagined. Kind of weird. Um, and I'm so grateful to Tom and to Karen and to you and to every bookseller who kind of just lifted the book up and started, you know, ordering customers to get it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can be pretty good at that sometimes. No, it's nice. I mean, I'm so grateful because it's something that when you're working on something for forever, because I, I took such a long time to write that book, I, I just take a long time to write. And it's, you just, you, you just, you don't believe that anything good can happen. You just kind of think, oh my God, I just want to fucking finish. <laughs> <laughs> But you want to finish it in the way that would be pleasing to you first, because I'm like your daughter in that sense, where not the litigator part, because I don't know how to argue, but I do know how to want optimal conditions. And I can be really choosy about making things exactly the way I want them for my value system. So I understand the wish to be competitive as well as to be really uh -huh. good or true environment. Like I want, I want to tick every single box of my rubric and I totally understand driving 45 minutes each way. Like that makes perfect sense right. to me. And that's sort of the way I approach revision and research and rewriting. But, but still you kind of do it. You kind of think maybe nobody cares. Like maybe I'm the only one and daughter, like, so, <laughs> but then when you meet other people who recognize your neuroticism it's such a gratifying experience. And the fact that the book has a tail, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's, I feel so lucky. For us, it's so gratifying because oftentimes there are books that have enormous success that I, well, sometimes I don't like them, right? Because books are like music, you know, are like sex. You like what you like and you can't, your, your taste in music. <laughs> if I happen to like, I don't know, Thelonious Monk, and somebody else doesn't, it doesn't mean that that music isn't good. It just means that that's my taste. And so there are some books that are incredibly successful that aren't necessarily my taste. So when it happens, when it dovetails, when the book is successful, and when it's in my wheelhouse as a bookseller, how excited are well, we? Well, it's really kind. But I do think it's funny because you and I are talking about taste now. And it's, I think what's funny to me is I, I teach writing and I believe that taste is subjective, but it's also objective. There are rules of beauty and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And as readers, even when you're a little tiny person, <laughs> you could be three or four years old and having your dad read to you, you have this sense that there's a beginning and a middle and end, and a character has to have a sense of recognition and a reversal, and then the reader feels a sense of catharsis or joy. There's a release of emotion, and all those rules are pretty much delineated, whether it's in Aristotle's poetics or by everybody who's written about aesthetics since the beginning of time, especially in Western literature, because that's my wheelhouse. Right. And I feel like we kind of know when something's really wonderful to us. 
And Thelonious Monk is a really good example because he's lasted. I mean, he has an incredibly classy tail, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> T-A-I-L. And I, I don't know. There's a part of me that has a kind of vanity about this where I really would like to, like, I want to be, I want to be read after I die. Like that's talk about vanity. I mean, I keep thinking if I work really, really hard at what I make, maybe this stuff will matter and maybe this stuff will last. And wouldn't that be so freaking cool? So of course, and I'm going to admit that because I'm 52 now and I do think about dying. So I keep thinking, well, what was the point of me having given up so many things to be a writer? Maybe even if like five people read it after I die, maybe that means something. Well, and I think it was, I think it was Isaac who early in the book, he just thinks to himself about the majesty of, wow, what if I'm able to do something that's worthwhile? Yeah. And that's, that's a really, uh, of course, if you're spending this time, effort, doing what you do. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Of course you want to be read now, but oh yeah, that idea of afterwards. Right. And I think that for a, a person from my background, female immigrant, I grew up working class and, you know, Asian, it's not like I come from a culture and a person like me is allowed to say, oh yeah, I want to be read when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why can't I just say that? But I have to tell you that I think Isaac is a really good. It's Isaac or Isaac. It's both. Sorry, thanks. No, no, no. It's, it's it's you're correct because it is Isaac, and it is Isaac. They're both because in Japanese, it's just a romanization of the Western name Isaac. So they're both correct, and it is taken from the Bible that name. But what I wanted to just say about that, what you just cited, is for me, even if I never wrote anything. Like, I keep thinking, well, how does this moment matter? Like, this moment that I have with you right this second. Like, how does it matter? And if for some reason we couldn't live anymore past this moment, like, did we shed light? Were we decent to one another? Did it make a difference? And of course, you have these bigger moments, like when Isaac essentially gives his name to an unborn child. And a kind of integrity and a protection mm -hmm. patriarchy gave him. Like, I think that's so incredible. Like when I teach my students or when I, when I'm parenting, how does it matter? And that makes me an awfully sober and probably an annoying person, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I like, I like it. Like, I want to believe that we matter. I know that's a theory, but I guess I want to believe it. And I do believe it. And that idea of what are you doing now and how important yeah. is it? I mean, that's a very, so Cousin Sakis is one of my favorite authors. And I think Zorba is just this incredible character of literature. And there's a moment when he is talking to the journalist that he has latched onto and he tells him what, what's important. <laughs> what's important is what you're doing right now. Are, are you, are you eating right now? Are, are you making love to a woman right now? That's the important thing. Whatever is right now, that's what you should focus on and do it as well as you can. And I feel like sometimes we forget that and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the dishes 
and I'm going to, what, I'm going to do like a half-assed job because I don't like, it takes the same amount of time. <laughs> so, so why not just clean the dishes? And I don't know. It's just a, and cleaning dishes, obviously, and writing something like pachinko or two. No, 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 no. Actually, I think cleaning dishes is really important. I think it's, is it Thich not Han? I don't know if I'm saying his name right. What is it? Being Happiness, I think it's book. I think that's his book. And, you know, he's that a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Uh-huh. And he actually uses the example of washing dishes. And he actually says, not only should you wash your dishes well in that moment, he actually says that you should be smiling. I'm not kidding you. I remember reading that going oh, like, that's seriously? Wonderful. Seriously? <laughs> I actually love that. But I think he's correct. And, you know, I'm Presbyterian. And here I am quoting a Vietnamese Buddhist monk's idea. But I, I get that. I get that sense of right. trying to be present, trying to be grateful, trying to do it well. And not, you know, not in a fake way. But in a real sincere way, because I don't know, sometimes you are asked to do dishes or sometimes you got to take out the garbage or deal with your taxes, all sorts of unpleasantness. And yet, how can you show up for that task? And what does it mean? That what does it mean? Yeah. Right. So that's really important. And, but again, I think that that's a, it's a philosophy of life. And I definitely think about it all the time which again makes me kind of a pill so <laughs> and i think about it all the time also and so i i will be <laughs> i'll be a pill, You're a pill too. <laughs> right, right along with you which i think is why that evening in san francisco was so fun because again it was like-minded people we were so excited to meet you we were so excited about the book and so for all of us again looking back i mean congratulations because Oh, you know, thank you. Thank a, you. I, it's, it was just an honor. And I still think that, I guess I think I was, I, one of the big problems of being super present is that I get too emotional and I don't know how to be more cool. <laughs> but, but I kind of, I kind of, I don't know. I keep thinking like one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to just be more polished but yeah, I don't know, whatever. But you know what? (laughs) But it's funny that you say that because you mentioned that and suddenly I'm back at that dinner and you were thanking us at one point and you got very emotional and you got very choked up. And, and that was infectious. That feeling, that true feeling that you were sharing with us at that moment. So no, don't, don't ever tamp that down. Well, honestly, Nick, I try and I can't. I've just decided that I, I guess I just have to sort of come to terms with it. Oh, embrace it. It's really funny because I did an event at an independent bookstore in New York. It was at Greenlight and it was actually for the, I remember it was for the, the downtown launch of the book. And a lot of my family was there and I really couldn't get through the reading without sobbing. And my publicist thought that I was having a nervous breakdown. And he kind of contacted me later and said, like, are you okay? Do you think you'll be able to do the tour? <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> and, um, and eventually, it was so funny because I had to figure out, what, like, how do I read parts of the book that don't make me lose my shit? So 
and then I had to practice them. And then eventually I was able to do it with like, you know, like 5%, you know, losing it and just right. being brain voice. But then the rest of it, I'm not literally the biggest crybaby in the world. So, but it was very funny because you can call Andy, my publicist at Hachette and go like, you know, did you think that she was going to have to be committed? And he'd be like, yes. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. For me, that's just embracing my inner Greek because we tend to be quite emotional. And so we can cry or scream at the drop of a hat. And you know what? Right, which is, I think, nice. It's really nice because I'm from Queens and there are a lot of Greeks in Queens. <laughs> and so, you so, know. I know your tribe. I <laughs> you like do. <laughs> In a perfect world, man, you would be sitting across from me and I would be making us a drink and we could toast and clink and chat. So let's talk cocktail names. There's a moment where somebody is referred to as a pachinko boy and pachinko boy. Ooh, mm -hmm. that actually sounds like a really good drink. Or is the name, is it pronounced paradisu? The name of the yeah, which is just, again, just a romanization of Paradise. So Paradise Sioux 6 had opened and Paradise Sioux 7 was going to open, but Paradise Sioux 6 also is, is a pretty sexy name for a cocktail, so I'm not quite sure what it should be Yeah, they called. would both work well, I think. They would both work. So when I'm, <laughs> when I'm reading a book, I am instantly looking for alcohol, I'm looking for flavors, I'm looking for smells, and food is such an important part of the book that you just gave me a plethora of things to choose from. And I think on the second page, you know, we've already got wine and tea. And then very quickly, you're describing cooking in Korea. And there's garlic and chili and potatoes and chicken and pigs running around and barley and steaming millet and radishes and salt and sugar and apples and oranges. And then the food comes in and the udon and the squid and the kimchi. And kimchi, of course, is is so important. And you have chestnuts and broth. Then the alcohol comes in with beer and sake and soju. And there are bootleggers, you know, who are doing the homebrew. And then very late, we've got champagne and whiskey. So I had just any number of things, flavors that I could choose from. And so what I decided to do was take something from the very beginning of the book and something from the very end, because watermelon, that scene where Huni is making, and so Huni is there's a cast of characters. I, what I love about Pachinko is, and it's hard not to sound like the cliché, but you know, it's the sweep and majesty of a multi-generational <laughs> tale. And in fact, it is all those things. And so how, how else do I say <laughs> that it's epic <laughs> and the scope is crazy because all of that is true. And to begin to, you know, mention one character, I mean, there are so many characters. And the beautiful thing though, is that we never forget who they are and they can walk off stage for dozens, you know, or a hundred pages. And then when they come back, we know exactly who that is. So Huni's very important and he is just so in love with his wife and he makes sure that he tends their watermelon patch because that's her favorite fruit. And so I knew that I wanted to use watermelon. And since bourbon and whiskey are some of my favorite drinks, I was on the lookout for that and I despaired because I didn't think that you were going to have a lot of whiskey. But then I think it's on page 450 or something. You finally do mention whiskey. And so I got to bring both of those things. That was for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I have a, there's a, a terrific Japanese whiskey, Nika, 
So your drink has about an ounce and a half of that Nico whiskey. It has an ounce and a half of watermelon juice. And then I put in just like a quarter ounce of sweet red wine and some lemon juice. Normally, I would be making this with you here and you're not here. And so now I have to make this just for myself and it's kind of a drag because I think you like it. I'm just gonna stir that up a little bit. So four years ago, this was Pachinko and it's now either Pachinko <laughs> Boy or it's Paradise Zoo 6. And we'll have to decide which that is. So I wanted to start with a happy hour and unfortunately happy hour of one is... <laughs> <laughs> rather sad. And I feel like Noah, who is very distrustful of people that drank and certainly would be distrustful of people that drank alone. And the idea was that we would be able to drink together. So like you said, you know, hoping for summer, maybe summer would be more normal. I cross my fingers if there's a day that we can clean classes. And you know what? I think that you're a drink. I like Paradise Six. I think that's really good. And Pachinko Boy, they're both really, really good. So maybe it can be different depending upon the time that you serve it. But your drink sounds kind of like a summer evening cocktail. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Because the watermelon and also because the dark color, it's so it's kind of romantic. I love that. Well, it's like a gorgeous drink, Nick. <laughs> it's pretty, it's, uh, you know, one is not supposed to, I think one of the mothers in your book mentions late about how she has a favorite child. <laughs> You have that wonderful omniscient voice and the voice is saying, you know, she kind of knew that she wasn't supposed to play favorites, but it was the truth. So I do really have fun mixing drinks and some are better than others. And in this room, they are all equal. Some are just more equal <laughs> than others. And yours certainly is more equal. So cheers. Well, cheers, sweetie. And that sounds delicious. And I'm very competitive. So I want it to be the best drink ever. <laughs> Well, and so that's interesting. And to hear you say that, because I know that many authors have, we all have our different methods of going about craft and how we do what we do. And I know that I think that you tend to go about it uh, with, I don't want to say precision, but some people are like, oh, I wait and I sit around and the muse is going to come and sit on my shoulder and whisper in my ear. And I feel like you get an idea and then you do an incredible amount of research before you hit the ground running. Yeah, I love research. And also, I think that I'm a very insecure person. And when <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, just it's just the way it is. And I can't change at this point. And I feel like when I get this kind of cool idea, oh, I'm going to write something. And this is what I really want to say. I think this is what I want to say. Then I start doing a lot of field work. I mean, I do a lot of book research, but then I also do a lot of field work. And then after I finish my process, I feel so strong. I feel really secure. Oh, right. It's joyful for me. I actually like writing drafts and I'll write a lot of drafts. And then when I have more research questions, because sometimes you figure out, oh, well, well, what would Zorba say? Like, let's say I have a character named Zorba and I think, well, I think he's this kind of person. But then what would he be like when he gets a cell phone? It might be different. Right. Because I, I don't think the author could have anticipated that. So I'd have to figure out, well, where does Zorba live and what kind of cell phone would he buy? And then kind of go from there. So, and I think that I do it because it gives, I've learned in the process that I can understand people's motivations more when I spend time with them. Mm -hmm. 
because we can say, oh, what does a lawyer do? Or what does a stockbroker do? Or what does a cafe barista do? And why do they do it this way? And for me, that's really why you hang out with me in a book is not because I can give you interesting characters and interesting plot, but really kind of the why. And that's not even research. It's more like, it's not research in a conventional sense of data and facts and unusual items. It's really about, well, why does Nick care about this? Why does men care about this? And that's, I think that's what keeps me up at night. And that's what makes me revise work is to try to figure out that more than anything else. Well, and then, because it's one of these things, because sometimes, you know, you, you read something or sometimes I will read something and you can tell that you can see the, the sweat dropping onto the page as the author is working and reworking. And I actually don't like books like that. I can enjoy on one level, but that's not something that I want to spend 20 hours with. And I rather, I prefer when the author has done so much work that that strong effort has been removed and we're left with these beautiful words on the page that just seem like, well, of course, right? That's how that person thinks. Or in Pachinko, since you do have that omniscient narrator, each character does have their own thoughts. And clearly you've spent time with them because I forget who was it. I think it's Mozazu. You're in his head. And the words on the page are, he no longer gave a shit. And that was really, that like kind of kicked me back because it was one of the first times that an epithet like that had been used, but, (laughs) but it made so much sense at the time, but it was something that only that character would think, you know, Sunya wouldn't think that the fact that we're just presented with everything that a character does, right. It's not done. It's all in purpose of the story and you're moving things forward with how they dress what they choose to eat or not eat, how they talk, what they say, what they think. And, oh my, I can't imagine the time that that must take to get right, especially in a book like this that has dozens of characters. Well, thank you so much for the care that you've given the reading of it. Because, and the way I sort of explain it is, especially to my writing students who I love and to fellow writers, because we, you know, because you're a writer and, you know, we could talk all day about how the fuck are we going to get this done? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's so hard. And yet I keep thinking after I do it, I want you to have a really good time. And I want you to do some work, but not very much work. As a matter of fact, if I can do all the work for you Mm -hmm. and you do all the imagining for me and all the feeling for me, then we actually have a good trade. So, the way I think about it is kind of like if I went to your house, Nick, for dinner, mm-hmm. my guess, because I know you a little bit enough to say, you know, I, I bet you if I went to Nick's house, it would be really good because <laughs> I'd probably walk in. I'd probably walk in. You'd probably offer me a drink. I would. There are probably snacks or something on the table. There are. Right. And then and I bet you they'd be really yummy snacks. I bet you they would kind of be. Thanks to Karen. Yes. Kind of be interesting and cool not just like a bowl of chips on the in a in an ugly in an ugly dish it would probably be 
really elegant because I know that you're elegant. And then most likely I would smell good food cooking. You would. And then Hopefully. and then there'd be a kind of a sense of timing and proportion and that there would be interesting people there and there would be a kind of warmth and a conviviality. And at the end there'd be a sense of playfulness. So then I could tell you that just because from knowing you for a little bit, as opposed to someone who might say, Hey, just come to my house and we'll Netflix and chill. And, <laughs> and then when you get there, the house is dirty. The bathroom is disgusting. And they have to order dominoes. And you know what? Like that's a different kind of evening. But, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to make a t-shirt with the platonic ideal of dinner at Nick's. <laughs> <laughs> Because the way it clearly was just described by by one of the best writers that we have going today. Because <laughs> I want to go to that party. <laughs> but but did you know I mean? I and I kind of think it's my job to think so hard about getting the perfect appetizer. Right. It's my job to create the most perfect drink for my honored guest, and it's my job to make sure that when you walk away from that dessert plate, that you think. I, I can't believe I tasted that. Like, and, and, and at the same time, and I don't want you to think so much about me. I want you to think about the fact that you're having a good time. So, and I think that that's part of my job as host and cook and curator and grocer and, and servant. Like, I think about all the jobs that I have to make sure that the bathroom, that the towels are freshly laundered and ironed when you wipe your hands during a course. Like, Right. And and I want to think that comprehensively just so you don't think about me. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And that's really interesting because I actually have never thought of an author as a host before. And what a terrific image that, that you've created because that's exactly what you do. You invite us in to your world, mm -hmm. into your home, and then you present us with these delicacies. And it's so enticing that of course we're not looking at our watch and when it's time to go, we're so sad because all along the way the the shrimp tempura that you prepare for the reader <laughs> late in the book. I mean, I can close my eyes right now and hear the peanut oil bubbling and you do that time and time again. And I just had not thought about that. The care that somebody would take in hosting a dinner party is very similar to the time care that an author does in preparing a book. That's, I really like that. Well, also you're an immigrant kid I am. and you came from an ethnic community yep. in which hospitality is do or die. Oh, right. Yeah. Can you imagine I went to your parents' house and I walked away hungry. You would just die of shame. Oh, you would. <laughs> Die of shame. One of my favorite memories, a friend of ours drove my brother home. So my older brother went to Harvard. And one of the times that he flew home, he was picked up at the airport by one of his best friends. And they, they arrive in Modesto, California after landing in San Francisco. I don't know. I think at 1130. And Dave thinks that he's dropping my brother off. And of course, in about 12 minutes, this feast has been laid out by my mom. And <laughs> It's like, it's 1130. It's midnight. What? But then you get so caught up in it. And yeah, and I can remember him, you know, leaving at probably two o'clock that morning. So full. 
And but anything, <laughs> but right, you can't. I mean, certainly the way that I was raised was well, absolutely, <laughs> you can't do it. There's not a there's not a choice. And, and hospitality, right? I think that's a very you know that idea is a very Greek idea that hospitality is so important and right. You live in or die by that. But I do feel that sense of hospitality for my reader. And I do believe that also it's a weird thing and it sort of dovetails with my vanity is that I keep thinking, well, in an attention economy, in a 21st century attention economy, when, when someone gives you their time, you do not fuck it up. You don't like, you just don't. If someone says, because it's not, because as you know, if I sell a paperback, I make like a dollar and 10 cents. Mm-hmm. Like you can look at my contract. <laughs> <laughs> and for a hard maybe it's like $2 and 15 cents. I don't know, something like that. I'm, right. I'm sure it's sad delighted that I just said this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so obviously I'm not doing this for the money. Like I used to be a lawyer. Like I know what it's like to make a decent salary. Right. And, and have regular health insurance. And somewhere along the line, I decided, you know what, I want to make this really cool thing. And I, I hope it works. But then I have to make sure that you enjoy the thing that I make. Otherwise, it was just pure vanity and not in any way a gift. And I do think that the sense of gift and hospitality is very important. It can't be just vanity. Like, I can't just be preening. I can't just be saying, oh, aren't I a wonderful cook? Like, that's just gross. <laughs> and, and sometimes like, I feel this way about when I read something and I think, wow, that's really beautiful, but then I feel nothing. And I think that the heart behind the beauty is really the thing that makes a reader feel excited. It, in the same way, when you give somebody a gift, they think, oh my gosh, you thought of me? Like, you really, it's not just like you, you start clapping because the thing is expensive or because the thing is rare. It's the fact that, no, they thought of me. And I am really thinking about my reader when I'm writing and about her pleasure and his delight in something. And and if they don't get it, of course, like not every book is for every reader, but a part of me just thinks, oh, I really want you to like it. I want you to like it. And I want you to have a good time. I don't want you to leave me because I'm such a lonely human being. And (laughs) there's, there's all of that in a book, I think. It's just a matter of degree. Like for me, the volume is always like 12. So I, I, I don't know. It's, it's pathetic, really, just how needy I am. But you know what? <laughs> but it's not because it is that thought and that care that you put into it is what makes a book like Pachinko so enormously powerful. There's a, there's a, a line late in the book, one of your characters that we, that we love. And is it Mozazu? No, you said it perfectly. So he gets into a car with his girlfriend and he looks at her and he says, put on your seatbelt, which of course, many adults would say to their passengers, but the reader then is stopped in their tracks because you remember that he lost his wife Mm -hmm. in a car accident. And, And so that pain and anguish comes flooding back to the reader. And all that you said was in dialogue, put on your seatbelt. And so the fact though, that you dropped that there, and of course you did it very intentionally. That's not, 
a throwaway line. Hopefully, if the reader's paying attention, they remember the tragedy. And I don't know. It's not vanity. It's like, I mean, because you have to have ego, right, to be a writer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't. And as a matter of fact, most of the depression that most writers have is because right. they're been so great and it's been so deeply wounded by obscurity. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And I say this as a person who really had such late success that when I didn't have success, when I didn't have recognition, I couldn't even admit the fact that it was really hurting me because I was so ashamed. It's like, what kind of sick, twisted human being wants attention, you know? And but I really felt like, oh, but I do. I want someone to think this is good. I want to have something wonderful as a result of all of my sacrifice. And I say this now because I've had one therapy and then two because <laughs> it doesn't make it go away if I don't say it. Like the feeling doesn't go away. And the, the I, I feel like I have to tell the truth about that. It was such a like gigantic overweening wish for success to have recognition like i did want those things and it would be a lie if i told you i didn't i mean besides emily dickinson what writer is content just with the you know the work of the words and that's such a big part of it but then of course you put your heart and soul into it and naturally you want people to read it naturally you want people to enjoy it and i i do you know i i have plenty of writer friends. And sometimes we do try to kid ourselves with, oh, you know, it, it's not important. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, of course <laughs> it is. I mean, you well, know, yeah. yeah. So, well, I you mean, know. And I do, I'm not going to write that many books. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to write maybe five before I die. And I'm working on two right now, one nonfiction and one fiction. And I know why it takes me so long. It's because there's so much I want to do in the maybe the five books that I get to write before I die. And I don't know. I mean, I am grateful. I'm so grateful for smart, thoughtful, generous readers because I know they're hard to get. Like I, I don't take that for granted. And then maybe it's because I had such a long time when I didn't have any books out there or anything published out there. Like now editors will reach out to me and say, Hey, do you want to write about this? Right. And I can be a bit more like, I know I can't because I got to teach or I got to do something else or I'm judging. But I remember a time when I was pitching nonstop and all I heard was no. Yeah. That's all I heard. No, 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 no. And underneath it was always like, you just don't cut it. And, and it really hurt. It really hurt. Like I wasn't trying like I was really trying and I was trying to get better. And then I realized like the thing that I want to do is so weird and different that I, I don't know, but I guess what I just want to say is that if there are any writers listening who are suffering, I want you to know, I feel you, man. <laughs> and also just even that hurting embarrassed me because I couldn't say it. I couldn't say that I wanted recognition, but I did. Well, and what a breath of fresh air, man, that you can just, that you can say that and just acknowledge that that's part and parcel with this strange thing that <laughs> writers do. And so, I mean, so thanks for that. You know, that honesty is sometimes hard to come by. Yeah. And I, and I wish that I could say being content is enough 
but I, I've, I've, but I've learned actually, maybe even going back to Thichnot Han, the Vietnamese Buddhist, as re- recited by a Presbyterian, <laughs> <laughs> to a Greek Orthodox, <laughs> to a Greek Orthodox, yeah, which is that I, I did learn how to smile wa- while washing dishes. I did. I learned it because I didn't get early success. And when I did get, when I was lucky enough to have a pre-publication dinner in Northern California, I did not take it for granted. Like I did not complain about going to an event because I thought, holy shit, my publisher actually believes in me and is willing to pay for this dinner. And all these important influential booksellers came and they could have stayed home, you know? And I remember thinking like, oh, this matters. And, and like, and you have that sense of gratitude because I was 40 something when that happened. And that was my second book. No, actually I was almost 50. Holy shit. Cause my first book was almost when I was 40 and I'd been writing seriously since I was 26. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I kind of think when people are, you know, I think Frank McCord talked about this, about Angela's ashes. He actually said, if I had had early success, I would have been an asshole. Right. I think I'm an asshole too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But I remember reading Angela's Ashes and thinking, holy shit, how did you do that? That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pause on that appreciative note. I, of course, want to say thank you to Minjin Lee for taking the time. I do have two favors. If you haven't yet read Free Food for Millionaires or Pachinko, what are you waiting for? You may find both at any independent bookstore. Also, I would appreciate it if you followed Drinks with Nick. Trust me, you don't want to miss the conclusion of this conversation. Tune in soon for more with Min Jin Lee.